A content warning. In discussing some of the legal cases in this era, there will be discussion of sexual assault, which some listeners may find distressing. There will also be frequent use of some sexually graphic language. Thank you. Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. If it be a sin to love a lovely lad, oh then sin I, for whom my soul is sad. The Affectionate Shepherd by Richard Barnfield, published 1594. Welcome to episode 13 of season 3 in Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, where I'll be discussing homosexuality, bisexuality, and the legal complexities of both in Tudor and Stuart Britain. We'll begin with the historical debate over homosexuality, the laws about it at the time, and the lives of some individuals they impacted. There is something to be said, first of all, for the modern worry that we are too eager to force historical characters out of the closet, and that we're too quick to apply modern sexual standards to the past. That is true and important, but it's equally important and equally true that homosexuality didn't come into existence in the Stonewall riots. It has existed as long as man. Despite the individuals to which they had to go to keep themselves safe by keeping themselves hidden, the Tudor era has some famous homosexuals, most famous today, ironically, being Anne Boleyn's brother George, Lord Rochford, for whom it must be said there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to even credibly suggest that he was. The popularity of the theory is largely thanks to the commercial success of the novel The Other Boleyn Girl, where the character of George conducts a love affair with courtier Sir Francis Weston, and also the commercial success of the Showtime television series The Tudors, where, played by Irish actor Parag Delaney, George has a menage a trois with two women, but then a long-standing romantic relationship with musician Mark Smeaton. However, the theory put forward by one historian that George Boleyn may have been gay or bisexual is on very, very shaky evidence. Like similar theories about the crusading king Richard the Lionheart or the 17th century's William of Orange, also known as William III, to reach that conclusion about George Boleyn, you have to get there on fragmentary, incomplete and sometimes anachronistically interpreted evidence. Are we therefore in danger of constantly misrepresenting people like George Boleyn or other medieval and early modern nobles such as Richard de Vere, Marquess of Dublin, because we're foisting our own coming out validating culture onto theirs? Well, yes, but also no, to give the historian's perennially split answer. To begin with the yes in the sense that has already been mentioned concerning King Richard, King William and Lord Rochford, we can sometimes leap to see something that is not there. A good example of this would be the story that Richard the Lionheart, king from 
1189-1199, shared a bed one night with King Philippe II of France, and that was taken by 20th century historians as an indicator of undue intimacy, perhaps suggestive that the two kings had an affair that later degenerated thus explaining King Richard and King Philippe's intense enmity. It's that version of events which is memorably and brilliantly preserved in The Lion in Winter, one of, to my mind, the best historical plays ever written. When adapted for the screen for the first time in 1968, The Lion in Winter saw Anthony Hopkins play Richard and Timothy Dalton play Philippe, two stars in a galaxy cast that included Catherine Hepburn as Richard's mother, Queen Eleanor, and Peter O'Toole as his father, Henry II. When The Lion in Winter was adopted for a second time, this time for television in 2003, the dysfunctional couple were played by Andrew Howard as Richard and Jonathan Rhys-Meyer as Philippe, with Glenn Close as Queen Eleanor and Patrick Stewart as King Henry. As a depiction of politics poisoning relationships, The Lion in Winter is just exquisite. But historically, it's based on an outdated theory about Richard the Lionheart's private life. From a viewer's perspective, I feel compelled to ask, who cares? However, from a historical point of view, it is relevant to this discussion that yes, sometimes a modern view on ancient evidence leads to wobbly conclusions. In Richard and Philippe's case, the idea that two men sharing a bed was a sign of intimacy, when in fact in the Middle Ages, beds were so rare and expensive that it was a sign of mutual respect and honour. So that's the yes of the possibility that we are um, too quick to assign homosexual or bisexual identities or motivations to historical figures. However, on the no, there is a big no, because on the basis that science suggests that at least, at the absolute least, 10% of the population are likely to feel an overwhelming and sustained preference for their own gender, while a far higher percentage will feel it, perhaps quite powerfully, at different stages in their lives. On that basis, we are in fact probably undershooting in our estimates on past figures and in danger of adopting an unhelpfully pedantic attitude when we try to offer alternative explanations about relationships where the most obvious conclusion clearly suggests a romance. While researching a book in 2014 that became my History of the English Monarchy, I have to say I find many of the alternative theories about King Edward II's relationship with Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall, to be laboriously silly. I had to agree with Gaveston's biographer, Professor J.S. Hamilton, who concluded that there is no question that the pair were romantically and sexually involved with one another. Admittedly, there are many more men, like Lord Darnley or King Henri III of France, for whom the evidence is conflicting, compared to men like Edward II, William II, Francis Bacon, Christopher Marlowe or James VI, for whom there is evidence so strong that it borders on proof. However, sexuality is a confusing and often confused spectrum. Many of us may know a person who was romantically or sexually involved with the unexpected gender, whatever that might be in their case, even if it was uh, typically out of character, we might say. And if similar behaviour happened in the 1500s, and there's no earthly reason to suppose that it didn't, it would have been impossible to prove 
for most men and women. As a result, nearly every theory about an individual can never be anything more than speculation. However, it's not true that that speculation needs to be pointless. Done well with the proper evidence that we have remaining to us, it can be intelligent, realistic and pragmatic speculation. This confusion is, however, unappealing for a more label-comfortable society like the early 21st centuries. The 1500s did not have the same categories of sexuality. Their beliefs about it were draconian in many ways. In particular, their attitudes to single mothers, male versus female adultery, and their attitudes to those who suffered from at-birth deformities or perhaps disabilities were nothing short of horrifying in that they believed, many of them believed, that these conditions were a consequence of a parent's sexual sin. And all of those attitudes claimed many, many victims. Puritans, the hard line of Protestantism that emerged in the late 16th century and acquired great influence in England until the middle of the 17th, were particularly obsessed with homosexual sin, bizarrely labelling it as a product of Catholicism. Some religious manuals from the period compared homosexuality to bestiality, incest and masturbation. Oddly, uh, some religious thinkers at the time classed all four as being equally wicked. However, they too had a spectrum in which we can see subtleties as well as certainties. So if that was the moral condemnation, what then was the legal status for homosexuals at the time? Laws known as the Buggery Statutes were enacted by parliaments under Henry VIII in 1533 and Elizabeth I in 1562, which in Henry's case made homosexuality a death penalty offence for the first time in English history. However, looking back on them a few years later, the lawyer and politician Sir Simmons Jews summarised the buggery laws as legislation of no great moment, meaning of no great importance. The statutes did have several famous casualties. For instance, Lord Hungerford, the nobleman who was beheaded on the charge on the 28th of July 1540, and the Earl of Castlehaven and his Irish lover Lawrence Fitzpatrick, who were both executed in 1631. But not many. Under Elizabeth I and James I, who combined ruled from 1558 until 1625, Buggery cases resulted in only six prosecutions in all of the south of England. In the reigns of Mary I and Elizabeth I, so in the half-century between 1553 and 1603, there were six times more trials for the extremely rare crime of bestiality in England and Wales than there were for same-sex relationships. This theory that these laws were hardly ever enforced is supported if we turn to surviving Tudor and Stuart era textbooks, textbooks, excuse me, for young legal students in which sodomy and buggery are passed over in minimal detail, conveying the impression that these were cases that no aspiring lawyer really needed to prepare for because they were so rare. Even the definitions were vague. Buggery pertained very specifically to anal sex or penetrative sex between two men. Sodomy 
or sorry, two males, I should say, sodomy was more imprecise. To deal with sodomy first, we think of sodomy as a biolegal term, but people in the 1500s applied sodomy to everything, from sex outside the missionary position to acts of blasphemy. For example, we can look at a case late in the reign of Elizabeth I, when a physician called Dr. Simon Foreman wrote about the case of a local housewife called Elizabeth Hipwell, who had committed adultery with two men at the same time in uh, 1596. Dr. Foreman describes Hipwell's threesome as sodomy. There was no standardised definition. Sodomy seems to have had a much more broad moral meaning of atypical sexual acts as they were regarded at the time. Things become even more complicated, however, when one looks at the evidence from the very few prosecuted cases that have survived concerning the buggery statute. When you start to look at it, it becomes clear that they were not dealing in the most part with what we today would describe as homosexuality. In nearly every single case, the prosecutions under the buggery laws relate to the sexual assault of one male by another. For example, a case heard in the Virginia colony in 1624 specifically states that the captain of a ship by force turned this examinee upon his belly, and it then goes into forensic detail about the ensuing assault. Even more specifically, the buggery statute was utilised most often to target child molesters who preyed on society's most vulnerable individuals. In 1569, for instance, it was harnessed to secure the execution of a man called Roland Dyer, a convicted paedophile in the southeastern county of Kent. From a historian's perspective, this indicates that the Tudor and Stuart eras did not possess the requisite legal vocabulary to describe the abuse of minors, but they were aware that it existed. Interestingly, similar legislation was enacted under the uh, reign of Elizabeth I in the hope that it would cover and protect young girls. But like the abuse of male children, it was covered in legislation ostensibly dealing with the assault of female adults. Just over half of the cases regarding rape in the Elizabethan period in England and Wales pertained to attacks on girls under the age of 12. Looked at in this light, it seems that a significant amount of the legislation that is often seen as part of the Tudor government's attempts to control its adult subject sexualities was in fact utilised to protect minors under two different types of gender rather than age-specific legislation. This theory, this which is growing in popularity, that the laws are not particularly relevant to the study of homosexuality, but more to the study of how abuse was prosecuted in the 1500s and 1600s, gains further credibility when we look at the two aforementioned aristocratic cases. While both Lord Hungerford in 1540 and Lord Castlehaven in 1631 were accused of buggery, both were also accused of committing sexual assault. This was particularly graphic and controversial in the Earl of Castlehaven's case, with several witnesses implying and one outright saying that Lord Castlehaven's wife and son 
were so appalled to discover the Earl's sexual liaisons with other adult men that they fabricated the evidence that he had planned to use one of his lovers to forcibly inseminate his daughter-in-law. And mother and stepson committed perjury right the way up to the courtroom to make sure the Earl and his alleged lovers died inventing whatever they needed to, to make sure he died. That was the the case made against Lady Castlehaven in the years after her husband's execution. Lord Hungerford was also accused of witchcraft, heresy and sexual assault. Consensual sex between adults, even if it was with members of the same gender, was thus very clearly recognised as something different altogether. And part of the explanation for this, I think, leads us from legal to cultural. We should remember that until the reign of Charles II in the 1660s, it was illegal for women to appear on the stage in England. So every time a person went to the theatre to watch Romeo and Juliet or any kind of romantic play, the female lead was played by a man. So men flirting with and kissing one another was therefore hardly an unusual sight in 16th century cities, even if just in the guise of theatrical fantasy. It is therefore unsurprising to find that 16th century writers pushed the envelope on sexuality a lot further than writers would in the next three centuries. Christopher Marlowe wrote the play Edward II, which presents a very close relationship between the eponymous monarch and Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall, while poets, including William Shakespeare, were prepared to play with homoerotic desire in their poems, sonnets, plays and puns. Within the aristocracy, attitudes were also much more heterogeneous than we might suppose. In the early 1600s, Catherine Howard, Countess of Suffolk, discussed King James's affairs with minimal embarrassment, and she even told the King's chief minister, Robert Cecil, that if he wanted to win the King over to his view, sending in a handsome man would get the job done quicker. Among the upper classes, a typical education was heavy on the study of the classics, which meant that young royals and nobles grew up familiar with a few ancient myths that dealt with same-sex relationships, like the story of Jupiter and Ganymede, or Achilles and Patroclus in the Trojan Saga, or even fairly unambiguously homosexual historical figures like the Roman Emperor Hadrian and his almost legendary grief for his legendarily good-looking lover Antinous. Traditionalist moralists in Italy and France certainly blamed overexposure to pagan histories in the classroom for the alleged rise in same-sex liaisons among young upper-class men in the late 1400s and early 1500s. A long-running 16th century joke was that homosexual activity was an upper-class vice. It was common for gentlemen from the elite to hire or fund the research of various scholars, who in return would usually dedicate their work to their patrons or write on topics designed to capture the patron's interest. In an era when most servants were the same gender as their employer, it was also customary for gentlemen to spend a great deal of time solely with their male servants. The design of houses also changed a lot in this period because there was an increasing emphasis on the concept of privacy. The most intimate room became the gentleman or lady of the house's closet, a kind of sitting room that was typically hidden away from the prying eyes of visitors, petitioners or other servants. It was often in these closets that the scholars would visit to discuss their latest theories 
or the wealthy gentleman might choose to have some quiet time with favourite friends and servants. It was from this habit that the phrase closeted away arose. Texts from the time reveal how much these closets featured in gossip about what went on between the gentlemen, their scholars or their servants. One 16th century nobleman complained, Jealous women and some men also will be apt to think that any man that useth it, meaning the closet, hath a young man to serve him, or that he useth his servants in that chamber. Books from the 1500s contain many saucy jokes about closets, keys and locks. The phrase in the closet thus came to imply an activity that could be carried out in private, but not in public. And that, I think, is the clue to the surprising dichotomy of the homosexual experience in the Tudor era. Much of it was based on ignorance, and the interaction between ignorance, legal silence, and cultural ambivalence produced an attitude of elaborate uncertainty. Legal prosecutions about sexuality tended to focus on non-consensual sex, suggesting that legislators, unlike certain moralists, had very little interest in prosecuting closet sins. As the works of writers like Christopher Marlowe or Richard Barnfield show, there was far more tolerance of consensual gay sex between two males than we might or that we might initially suppose. In many ways, the Elizabethan attitude was to prove more relaxed than its equivalent in the mid-1800s or certainly the 1950s, when even men as celebrated and brilliant as the war hero and codebreaker Alan Turing were chemically castrated as part of their mandatory quote-unquote cure. However, we should not get carried away in assuming the Tudor period was tolerant in the way that we would now conceive of the concept of tolerance. Homosexuality remained a sin even when not actively treated as a crime. The idea that what went on in the closet should stay there, hidden away from view, in part explains the lack of prosecutions under Mary I, Elizabeth I and James I, reinforcing the idea that actualised homosexuality must not enter the public sphere. Homosexuality belonged on the stage and in the closet, in the pagan past, youthful follies, and the imagination of fanciful poets, as well as in lurid jokes at the aristocracy's expense. People who had sex with their own gender were sinners, just as all men and women were. But unlike them, they were uniquely vulnerable to being condemned by cultural expectations to compartmentalise or neuter their lives. But this still shows us, I think, that it is always more elusive, subtle and fascinating than we give past attitudes credit for. What of the experience of some individuals of whom we can be fairly certain about their homosexuality or bisexuality? In some cases, wives knew or suspected that their husbands might prefer men. It's important to note that the concept of distinct homosexuality did not exist until it was articulated in psychological research in the late 19th century. But in some cases, it was obvious how people felt. Some wives, especially in the aristocracy, made their peace with it and made the best of the situation. After all, it was potentially preferable to heterosexual adultery, since their husbands would not be able to set up a mistress or lover in public competition to their wives. 
arrangements, spoken but not written understandings, between perhaps a heterosexual aristocratic wife and her homosexual or bisexual husband, to use the modern nomenclature, certainly existed. This, uh, by the way, is the setup fairly brilliantly dramatised in season one of the HBO hit series House of the Dragon, between the fictional characters of Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen and her husband Sir Leonor Valarian. For others, however, the issue of sexuality proved difficult, distressing, divisive, and sometimes deadly. This was certainly the case between Walter Lord Hungerford and his wife Elizabeth. Born in the reign of King Henry VII, specifically the year 1503, to Sir Edward Hungerford and his wife Jane, Walter was born in the English county of Somerset, where his family were long-standing members of the local landed classes. Aged 19, Walter inherited his patrimony upon his father Sir Edward's death, and like many of his ancestors, Walter Hungerford was a minor medieval aristocrat, wealthy and without much presence at the royal court. Instead, he preferred to spend most of his time at his estates. This happened with several peers, not many. Some, like the Earl of Kent, who suffered from financial difficulties, preferred to shield his debt and spare his blushes by staying away from the royal court, where a certain lifestyle, including a standard of dress, meant an inevitably high expenditure. Others, like the Earl of Shrewsbury, were simply not especially interested in what they regarded as the stress-inducing hothouse of court life, while others, like James Butler, the future Earl of Ormond and Ossory, simply preferred life on their home estates. Walter Hungerford was, however, a trusted member of county society, who competently and loyally fulfilled the obligations of the aristocracy at the time, in providing employment, administering justice when necessary, maintaining law and order, and enforcing the government's decisions as and when required. In 1536, when he was in his early 30s, Walter left the gentry for the aristocracy by being ennobled as Baron Hungerford after several years of proving particularly useful to King Henry VIII and his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. Coupled with Walter's barony was his expanding family, including the heir in the person of Walter's son, who was probably already a few years older when his father and namesake became a baron. In later life, the younger Walter would be nicknamed the Knight of Farley after his uh, home manner and his spectacular sporting and fighting abilities. This heir, younger Walter, was the product of his father's first marriage to a local woman called Susan Danvers, daughter of a landed family in the county of Wiltshire. Through that marriage, the Hungerfords expanded their interests and influence into Wiltshire. Susan Hungerford passed away young, quite possibly in consequence of childbed complications, after which Walter did, as was expected of him, and remarried in about 1527 to Lord Sand's daughter, Alice. His new father-in-law was a prestigious courtier who served in Henry VIII's household and enjoyed his favour. This may have been how Walter came more to the Crown's notice, though it is interesting that he didn't begin to spend more time at court, even though after his second marriage he had the connections requisite to do so. With his second wife Alice, Walter welcomed three more children, a second son Edward and two daughters, Eleanor and Mary. Alice too died young, perhaps in consequence of a pregnancy. Not long after, Walter made his third marriage, and perhaps we might even say his fatal one, when he married Elizabeth Hussey, whose father, Lord Hussey of Sleaford, 
served in the household of the king's eldest daughter, Princess Mary, and whose family were prominent landowning conservatives in the north of England. At what point the baron's sexuality became clear to his third wife is unknown. We can be certain of her reaction, however. Elizabeth, Lady Hungerford, was disgusted and appalled. Walter was sexually involved with two of his long-term servants, uh, one man called William Master, another called Thomas Smith. What happened exactly in the Hungerford household is very difficult to decipher, as so much of it became painfully sensationalised later. We do know that Lady Hungerford claimed her husband had physically abused her and essentially barred her from leaving their marital home in the countryside. It is worth noting to Lady Hungerford's defence that she seems to have made these claims sometime around 1536, long before she could make capital from it during Walter's downfall. She also did not defend Walter from later accusations that he had consulted a local witch when he asked her to prophesize for him how much longer Henry VIII would live. That may be more credible than otherwise, for despite his previous loyal service to the crown, Walter Hungerford's religious sympathy seemed to have been pro-Catholic and anti-Reformation, as evidenced by his appointment as his personal chaplain of a priest who was said to remain secretly loyal to the Pope after Henry VIII's schism with the Catholic Church in 1533. It was Walter Hungerford's political and religious sympathies that eventually turned him into a target. But the marriage with Elizabeth was to prove disastrous or weakening on two fronts. The first was, and almost two contradictory fronts, we might say. The first was that it's manifestly miserable and I think quite possibly abusive dynamic. Left Walter open to accusations or revelations about the nature of his private behaviour at the same time the political alliance it represented tied Walter socially to Elizabeth's family. Regardless of how much Walter and Elizabeth disliked each other, the marriage still tied Walter socially to her family at a time when they had suddenly become personae non grata. Five years after Walter and Elizabeth's wedding, Elizabeth's father was beheaded for treason after backing the anti-Reformation uprising against Henry VIII in the north that was later called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Walter Hungerford's links to the Hussey family suddenly became a liability, as did his own long-rumoured conservative sympathies. His wife Elizabeth, daughter of one conservative and wife of another, was suddenly in a perilous position too. Ironically, it all came to a boil during the downfall of one of the great radicals of the 16th century, the aforementioned politician Thomas Cromwell. However, to remind people who was in charge, Henry VIII had developed a thoroughly unpleasant habit of executing figures from both factions alongside one another so that neither got too confident. Whispers of Walter's sympathies and sexuality wove together to see him selected as the victim and arrested, with his wife testifying against him. In prison, Hungerford suffered a nervous breakdown and signs of mental agitation were still apparent to eyewitnesses when he was beheaded outside the Tower of London on the 28th of July 1540. I would argue uh, Hungerford's case shows the ways in which homosexual liaisons could be weaponized against a target. But I would also argue that especially in the case of aristocratic victims, that that person had already become a target because of something else. 
in Lord Hungerford's case, his religious and political conservatism. That caveat or specification about an aristocratic victim brings us to another problem or feature of studying this issue, which is that the overwhelming amount of evidence, certainly detailed about any one individual's case, tends to be about figures in the nobility or the elite. This is not a feature unique to the study of sexuality in the early modern period, as the aristocracy, royalty and the landed gentry dominate the study of nearly every major section of research, because documentary evidence about them survives in greater detail and was produced in far greater volume than it was about other classes in contemporary society. If I was to compile a brief list of those of whom there have been discussions about their possible homo or bisexuality, it is nearly exclusively members of the upper classes. Along with the first Baron Hungerford, there was James VI, King of Scots, Henri III, King of France, Henry, Duke of Albany, Esme, Duke of Lennox, Henry Risley, Earl of Southampton, Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton, Robert Carr, Earl of Somerset, Sir Thomas Overbury, John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, all contested. And they are all, as you just heard, also exclusively male. Part of the reason for that is the aforementioned biolegal concept of buggery and sodomy as a penetrative act, be that orally or innally, and that by its definition that left lesbianism of far less a concern or perhaps far less a provable sin or crime. It was discussed so infrequently in comparison to um, male-upon-male acts of intimacy. Um, and a few centuries later, it is worth noting that both Queen Marie Antoinette of France and Britain's Queen Victoria did not seem to know that lesbianism existed. But while harder to find, examples of women or those outside the blue-blooded confraternity of the, of the elite are not impossible. I truffled. Richard Barnfield arrived to a middle-class family in the village of Norbury in Staffordshire in the east of England in the last week of June 1574. Elizabeth I was on the throne as she had been for the last 16 years and as she still was when 15 years later young Richard left Norbury for Oxford to commence his university studies. 15 or 16 was not an unusual age to matriculate to Oxford at the time, which Richard did by joining Brasenose College that sits in the shadow of the beautiful University Church of St Mary the Virgin, which dates from the reign of King Edward II. On the opposite side of the street, not too far from the college, was Grope Cunt Lane, the narrow passageway that led to Oxford's red light district, where students could encounter local prostitutes. For reasons which perhaps do not require too much explanation, Grope Cunt Lane was renamed in gentler times, and today it's called Magpie Lane. Like many an Oxonian before and since, once Oxford ended, Richard went to London. There, aged 21, he published his first work of poetry in book form, titled The Affectionate Shepherd, which did very well, but Richard soon found himself the recipient of harsh criticism from moralists because of the work's celebration of homosexuality. Richard seemed to have tried the pull excuse, Richard seemed to have tried to pull the wool over censorious eyes by dedicating the affectionate shepherd to the court beauty Lady Penelope Devereux. But even a brief scan at the wording in the affectionate shepherd shows us that the narrator, a male shepherd, is talking about loving um, a lovely lad, a member of his own gender. In fact, by this time, 
Richard may have married subject to dedication by becoming romantically involved with an aristocrat, perhaps briefly. Not long after the success and scandal of The Affectionate Shepherd, Richard published another work, this one inspired by the ancient Greek legends of Cassandra. He dedicated this to William Stanley, Earl of Derby, and in the preface to the new book, Richard tried to backpedal the scandal caused by the affectionate shepherd, insisting that his critics had found evidence of a pro-homosexuality stance where he had not intended it, or as he put it, they did interpret otherwise than in truth I meant. Having done that, however, Richard then proceeded to dedicate the work to Lord Darby in far more fulsome terms than he had the previous work to Lady Penelope Devereux. In their study of the poetry of the later Elizabethan period, literary scholars Sir Stanley Wells, Honorary President of the Shakespeare Birth Trust, and the Reverend Dr Paul Edmondson, Honorary Fellow of Birmingham University, have concluded that in this second work of Richard Barnfield's, he all but admits to an extremely close relationship with Lord Darby, quite probably a romantic one, which is corroborated by several of his poems, which um, the scholars Wells and Edmondson describe as openly and explicitly homoerotic, detailing Richard Barnfield's sexual desire for other men and his joy in exploring that desire. The London of the 1590s was one of intense ambiguities for same-sex love, as we've discussed, and I think Richard Barnfield typifies this as he proclaims it one minute and underplays it the next. Aged 24, Richard wrote what would be his final work, The Encomion of Lady Petunia. I think it may hold the explanation for why Richard Barnfield's career ceased so abruptly. For while his first two works praised love, the encomium of Lady Petunia praises money. The writing, it seems, wasn't paying enough. And towards the end of Elizabeth I's reign, Richard left London to go back home to his native Staffordshire. For a long time, the story ran that Richard settled down, married a local woman, had a family and lived into the reign of King Charles I, dying a wealthy married man of property. But the research now indicates that this was based on misreading a will about a relative with the same name, and that Richard Barnfield, the poet, died unmarried almost a decade earlier. No such anonymity cast its light or shadows on the final figure we're looking at, at indeed any stage of her life. The Mancini sisters were a 17th century cross between the Kardashians and the Mitfords. They were glamorous, wealthy, scandal-prone and heavily political. Like the Kardashians, this cabal of sisters fascinated some in the public and infuriated others. To mention the Mancinis in many sections of 17th century society would lead to the same touch, arch of eyebrow and roll of eye that greets the Kardashians among their modern detractors. I might be biased or a bit off, but I've always, I mean, just slightly bemused by the sheer intensity of the reaction that greets the Kardashians. Life is tough enough. If you want to enjoy yourself by watching the matriarchal mayhem of Kris Jenner and her quintupledom of daughters, knock yourself out. Enjoy it. If you don't, change the channel, buy somebody else's products, and we can all relax about what another person enjoys to watch on TV. More pertinently for our historical study, like the half-dozen Mitford sisters who dominated the tabloids in the 1930s, the Mancinis were never very far away from a political scandal. 
Hortense Mancini was born in Rome on the 6th of June 1646, the Eternal City, then functioning as capital for the Papal States, the theocratic elective monarchy of the Vatican that then stretched across most of what is now central Italy. Her father, Baron Lorenzo Mancini, died when she was four years old, at which point Hortense's mother, the Dowager Baroness Geronima Mancini, upsticks and moved Hortense, or Hortensia as she was in Rome, her four sisters and their brothers Paolo, Philippe and Alfonso to Paris. They went because in Paris the Dowager Baroness's brother, Jules Mazarin, was a Catholic cardinal who had flourished in the French political system, where he had become chief advisor to the Queen Mother Anne of Austria. Queen Anne, the Queen Mother, was then ruling the country in the name of her infant son, Louis XIV. Backed by their uncle, Cardinal Mazarin, the Mancini siblings were soon brought up among the French aristocracy, flourishing under his patronage and his extraordinarily large fortune. Social success was also helped along by the Mancini sisters' legendary beauty. The eldest of the sisters, Laura, married the Duke of Vendôme, one of France's highest-ranking peers, as a legitimised grandson of the late King Henri IV. The second sister, Olympia, the family wit, married the Count of Soissons, future prince of Savoy Carignano, and together they became parents of one of the greatest generals of the next generation, the legendary Prince Eugene of Savoy. The third sister, Marie, very nearly had the greatest catch of all, when the young King Louis XIV shocked everybody by saying he wanted to marry her. Gossips claimed the ambitious Cardinal Mazarin had sent Marie to seduce the king so that he could see one of his nieces become France's next queen consort. In reality, Mazarin was enough of a shrewd statesman to know that Louis XIV would squander a diplomatic advantage by wasting his marriage chances if he wed one of his subjects, when he could do great benefit to the French crown by forging a marriage alliance with a foreign princess. He eventually married Princess Marie-Thérèse of Spain. At the time, gossip ran rife that Louis XIV was so smitten with the Mancinis that he had even briefly tumbled into bed with their brother Paolo. To remove the temptation, Marie was placed quickly into an arranged marriage with the spectacularly wealthy Italian aristocrat Prince Lorenzo Colonna. The youngest sister, Marianne, shortly after the Colonna marriage, married the Duke of Bouillon and, like her sister Olympia, became a great figure in French high society. The Duke's family, the House of La Tour Auvergne, were considered one of the seven great noble houses, the, some of the oldest and most prestigious in the French nobility. Hortense, too, married well and in doing so married terribly. Aged 14, she was betrothed to one of the richest men in Europe, Armand de Laporte, who was granted the Duchy of Mazarin once her uncle the Cardinal passed away. With her uncle's passing, Hortense lost her most devoted and effective protector. It also, around that time, became clear to her that her husband Armand was intensely puritanical and that this trait was getting worse. He banned, for instance, totally banned their dairy maids from milking cows because the squeezing of the udders with the hands, followed by the white expulsion, seemed to Armand to be too close to the act of male ejaculation and the motion of the maid's wrists and hands thus a stepping stone to sin. Hortense and Armand had four children, Marie Charlotte, Marie Anne, Marie Olympe and the heir to their dukedom Paul. 
Armand's views began to turn against his glamorous, outgoing wife, whom he began to physically and emotionally abuse. He banned Hortense from seeing any male friends. He would break into her bedroom at night to ransack the room searching for love letters. And finally, he separated her from her children and shipped her off to a convent deep in the countryside. There, Hortense began a romantic liaison with a young married woman called Marie, the rusticated wife of the Marquis de Courcelles. Hortense also did not win many friends, following a quarrel at the convent with the Reverend Mother, after which Hortense retaliated by urinating in the font so that the nuns ended up accidentally dabbing their fingers and heads with her urine when they went to Mass. Brought back to her husband's side, Hortense soon realised he planned to take her with him deep into the countryside so that she was never out of his sight and never near her friends again. Begging her brother Philippe, by then the Duke of Nevers, to help her, Philippe found Hortense horses and clothes and helped her flee her marital home under cover of darkness. Disguising herself as a highwayman, she escaped and fled to England, where she presented herself at the court of King Charles II. There, the merry monarch with a past more scandalous than most was dazzled by Hortense's charm, wit and confidence. She became his latest mistress, possibly a French spy, and he settled a generous income on her, which meant Hortense was finally financially free of her demented husband. She continued to enjoy occasionally dressing as a man. She taught herself how to fight with pistols and swords, and having mastered those lessons, began to challenge people to duels. She hosted salons for artists and philosophers in London. She became the toast of English high society. She joined Charles at his palaces at Whitehall, Windsor and Hampton Court. But then things went awry when she allegedly had a brief fling with Charles's eldest illegitimate daughter, Anne, the recently married Countess of Suffolk. After that, Charles's romantic ardour towards Hortense somewhat cooled, and I would say somewhat unsurprisingly. Hortense went back to Europe, and her next affair with Louis Grimaldi, Prince of Monaco, saw Charles II retaliate by cutting off her pension. Hortense, determined to avoid her estranged husband Ormond, appealed to an ex-suitor, the Duke of Savoy, who offered her a home, while Louis XIV, still a friend, made up for the loss of Charles II by setting aside a colossal pension in Hortense's own name. She went to a chateau in eastern France, where she again became a celebrated hostess and patroness. Hortense, Duchess of Mazarin, died in July 1699, aged 53. And I will be at one point doing a couple of episodes on the entirety of the Mancini sisters because they really need the time. It's, it cannot be briefly done. I hope you have enjoyed or at least been interested with this exploration of sexuality through the laws at the time, the cultural differences from those laws, and the lives of a few of the people impacted by both. I've been Gareth Russell, and thank you very much. Mm-hmm.